I had the privilege to talk with Dr. Stephanie Taylor in this episode. Dr. Taylor's medical background sheds a whole new light and a new twist on humidity and how it affects pathogens and our bodies. So Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today at Rep Talk. I've been looking forward to this conversation for, uh, for a while now. Funny story, I read this article in Engineered Systems last month, and it was titled, Using the Indoor Environment to Contain the Coronavirus. So I was like, oh, that grabbed my attention. Read through it, and I'm like, okay, okay. And I, I see this part about humidity and controlling humidity in the space to control pathogens. And I'm like, oh, that was really fascinating. I look down at the bottom, Dr. Stephanie Taylor, MD. Here I'm thinking... Here's a medical doctor writing this beautifully <laughs> well-written article about our indoor spaces and in our indoor environment, my background, heating and air conditioning. I'm like, wow, that really grabbed us. I'm like, okay, just took note of it. Next day, I jump on LinkedIn and I see a LinkedIn post. It was by uh, one of the steam humidifier companies and they, and they said, here, watch this video about you know, humidity controlling the, uh, the indoor environment. And lo and behold, there is Dr. Stephanie Taylor again. I'm like, this is a sign I have to get a hold of you. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your time and being here. I really appreciate that. So with your, I'm really fascinated with your, the background that you have um, as a doctor and your, your training um, in the medical field. How did you come to arrive at talking about humidity? It's a good question. Um, so after I graduated from medical school and did my training, I was uh, practicing as a pediatric oncologist. And my patients, my young patients would, you know, often survive their cancer, survive chemotherapy, only to get an infection while they were in the hospital. And these infections are actually like alarmingly common. They're called nosocomial infections or healthcare associated infections. They're a big problem. As a physician, I felt like the building had a, had a role in which patients got infections. It wasn't the whole story, but it seemed to be part of the story. And yet, as a physician, when I tried to you know, explore this possibility with the facility managers in Boston, you know, they just didn't really want to talk to me, and I didn't understand much about buildings at all. I re and when I talked to my physician colleagues, they just said, you know, wash your hands, give the correct antibiotics, and don't worry about it. That's all that's involved. But as time went on, I thought about how people do in their physical environment, and more and more I thought the building, I need to understand buildings. So in the ripe old age in my 40s, I went back to school, got my master's in architecture and engineering, and began to, and worked for a while designing hospitals. So I could really talk about buildings, understand buildings, understand mechanical systems. And then as I went back and uh, worked with infection control professionals in the hospital, I sort of had like a eureka moment one day, which was instead of just using these surrogate techniques for evaluating the cleanliness of a room, you know, Petri dishes or different ATPAs wipes or the different metrics. I thought, why don't we use the, the Petri dish, so to speak, in the bed called the patient? Why don't we look at what, how the patient's doing as a reflection of the building? Once that occurred to me, I thought, well, this is so obvious. It must be what everybody does. We look at human health as a building metric, mm -hmm. but I've come to find that that's not always what happens. You know, buildings are usually monitored for energy use or real estate values or right. aesthetic value, you know, windows and cool forms. And, but rarely are building occupant metrics used to reflect on the building, unless you're in a disaster, you know, like whatever it is. Right. With that sort of framework in my mind of using patient outcomes to evaluate the hospital building, I found out about a study that was going on up in the Chicago area 
where a group of researchers were looking at the movement of bacteria and viruses in a hospital building. So they were interested in how the, the environmental parameters, especially indoor air mm-hmm. characteristics, influenced how a building is occupied by microbes. So I found out about that and I called them and I said, hey, I'd love to look at patient outcomes in the, in the parts of the hospital you're studying. So this very energetic microbiologist was like, sure, awesome. So it sent me a lot of data. So in analyzing that data around patient outcomes, we had uh, about 400 patients and all of their records. We had 11 variables in patient rooms and nursing stations that we were looking at. Mm-hmm. We were looking at carbon dioxide, temperature, hand hygiene, compliance, uh, room traffic, VO- let's see, VOCs, HEPA filtration, room air changes, pressurization, all this sort of parameters that are considered in the design of a patient room. So we had all, we had about 8 million environmental data points. We sent all of this off to our statistician and said, are there any independent variables? Are there any building characteristics are, are related to either more or you know, more fewer infections? So the data came back and, and uh, our statistician said, yeah, the patient room relative humidity is lower infection rate is higher and I was wow. like I was like relative what I don't even know what relative humidity really was I mean I had some idea yeah, but I, yeah. I thought, <laughs> what I thought, is he talking about I thought, that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> exactly so what do you do when you get unexpected data you yeah. you fire your statistician which is what we did <laughs> <laughs> so we hired a new group we said could you get this right please could you give us something we expect? Right. And they came back and they said, no, low relative humidity is a driver for higher infection rates. Wow. Wow. Now twice, twice now. Twice. <laughs> Independently. <laughs> At like P less than 0.02, which means that yeah. that's highly statistically significant. This controlled for patient illnesses is controlled for the other variables, which were also important. I mean, hand hygiene is clearly important. Mm-hmm. But the, the variable that changed was the patient room relative humidity. And with that, we had a change in infection rates. I was still skeptical. Yeah. So I embarked on a, a study that's now six years in the running uh-huh. in, uh, in nursing homes. And so starting, we collected four years of indoor data and the same parameters. And we related that to how the patients, how their health was. So mm-hmm. we looked at respiratory infections, so pneumonia, viral infections. We looked at gastrointestinal infections like norovirus, notavirus. These are things that cause like yeah. diarrhea. And we looked at skin healing, pressure wounds, a lot of different patient variables. Again, we sent this off to our statistician who said, oh, interesting. When the indoor relative humidity is between 40 and 60%, you have the fewest number of patient infections. Wow. So I was wow. like, it gives me goosebumps. Even yeah, yeah, sure. One day my phone started ringing. I thought it was a spam call. I answered it nevertheless. And it was a physician from the General Services Administration at the NIH. And he said, after I found out who he was, <laughs> he said, you know, we did a big study because some of our employees are exhausted they're not productive, 
and they're stressed out all the time. And we, this isn't just subjective information. We actually tested their heart rate variability. We tested the wow. cortisol in their saliva. We, we monitored how they blink their eyes. All of these things are related to stress. And he said, and when we, we looked at VOCs, we looked at carbon dioxide, sound, lighting, cubicles versus open spaces. And he said, when we put all of our data together, it turned out when the relative humidity they use 35% as their lower cutoff. Mm -hmm. The relative humidity is less than 30%. Our workers have higher cortisol levels. They're not productive and they're stressed. He, he said, we understand that you're interested in relative humidity. It's Interesting. So here separately, the government's looking at it independently from what you're doing. And they called you and lo and behold, you guys are coming to this, a similar conclusion about relative humidity. Exactly. Wow. So this, so then, um, thankfully, there. When I started really digging into this, there are studies going back to 1985 that show that there's this this sweet spot between 40 and 60 percent relative humidity, where the microbes that make us sick, the pathogens, the bacteria and the viruses, are less of a problem, and our health is actually more optimized. And so now we, we know the pieces of this much better. It's very um, consistent. Interesting. So they go back to 1985, the similar, similar findings, if you will, based around relative humidity. Interesting. So tell me actually what happens to a pathogen that's airborne and then what's hap what happens to us physiologically when, when the humidity is outside of that range. So why do we get this double whammy or this, this, this effect on us? That's a great question. Before we talk about that. Yeah, sure. One important thing to differentiate between is indoor climate and outdoor climate. Because anytime you talk about temperature and relative humidity, people, at least this is the way I used to think, people yeah. think about the outdoor climate. Yeah. That's where we measure it and monitor it and record it. For example, why do we get the flu season in the winter? Why do we get the flu in the winter? So in the winter time in a cold temperate uh, zone, you know the air is cold, has a certain amount of moisture in it. You bring that air into your building. If you heat it up and don't add humidity, the relative humidity, and engineers don't like it when I say relative humidity. Mm -hmm. They say, let's talk about dew points or let's talk mm, about yeah, yeah. humidity. And I'm like, I understand. Yeah. Relative humidity changes with the temperature. Yep. But it's the relative humidity that actually speaks to the vapor pressure of water, which is the critical variable in this phenomenon. So, so what you're saying is we're taking dry air as it, as it stands in the outdoor environment. We take the, what, so it would be inside, and we're taking that air and we're, we're heating it up in our heating seasons and drying it out mm -hmm. further. Is that, did I hear that accurately? Yes, I, although outdoors, um, so I live in Vermont. In the wintertime, it can be 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And the relative humidity, because the temperature is low, could be 60, 70%, because cold air doesn't hold much, much water vapor. Right. So you bring that amount of vapor in as a metric of absolute humidity, then you raise your temperature to 70 degrees, and all of a sudden the relative humidity has plummeted about, right. about 20%. The absolute humidity stays the same. Gotcha. Gotcha. And we don't have to get into the psychometric discussion. Yeah. That's okay. That's fine by me. That's another, that's another, another day. Another talk. <laughs> so, so what happens 
say in the wintertime, when you bring this air in, you heat it up to comfortable temperatures and the relative humidity is at 20%. So what happens? So number one, any viruses and bacteria that are in your building or that people are coughing out if they're sick, they, the droplets come out of our airways and they, they very rapidly shrink down to a tiny, tiny size called, and then they're called a droplet nuclei. nuclei. And we, we used to think that those droplet nuclei, that those particles were just dead viral or bacterial material. But this is really interesting. Starting um, around 2003, right when we sequenced the human genome, we started using different tools to analyze those dried up uh, mucus particles. And what we found using new techniques, these uh, genetic analysis tools, we found that those viruses and bacteria in the dry, desiccated droplets are dormant, but they're not dead. They're not dead. They're actually highly infectious wow. when they meet up with another human being who's nice and moist. So they're just hibernating. They're basically hibernating. Exactly. Okay. But of course, we have a term, Vial, uh, dormant but viable. <laughs> dormant but viable. Wow. Kind of like when you're deep in your sleep at night, mm -hmm. you're dormant, but you're still alive. So these are, for all practical purposes, these are bioaerosols though, right? So these are, these are, these are uh, living organisms that are dormant, but in our, in our airstream and in our breathing air. Exactly. Okay. So back to your question. Yeah. In low relative humidity, you have a lot of these in the airborne environment, number one. Number two, for reasons we don't understand yet, many bacteria and viruses are actually more infectious when they're in that airborne state. So something changes. And we don't, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. So that's number two. And number three, a human being in that dry ambient environment, our respiratory immune system is impaired. So our mucus becomes thicker. The little cilia, these little hairs, that are in our airways mm -hmm. that are designed to wash things away from our lungs. The mucus is too thick and the cilia can't work. If, if you smoke cigarettes, nicotine temporarily paralyzes the cilia, which is why when that. you don't smoke overnight, you wake up and people cough up a lot of it. Uh -huh. Interesting. Okay. But it's not just the mucus and the cilia. There are other cells in your respiratory immune system that we now know. It was a beautiful paper came out of Yale in May 2019, uh, published in the PNA Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And it, this paper actually showed the mechanisms of immune system impairment that occur um, in dry ambient conditions. So Dr. Awasaki's lab, you, they use genetically engineered mice that mm -hmm. uh, respond the same way humans do to influenza A. And they looked at 20% and 50% ambient humidity and found that at 50%, the respiratory immune system is optimized. And at 20%, there are all sorts of impairments along the immune response. When you put all this together, Rob, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. low relative humidity, you have more airborne organisms. They're more virulent and the human being immunity is impaired. But then mother nature thankfully gave us this 40 to 60% window you know, so we have a chance against these single cells. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost, 
it's, it's so powerful. <laughs> it's powerful. And I'll tell you what I get a kick out of. Honestly, I'm just sitting here admiring what you're saying because in my trade at HVAC, you know, we love talking about temperature and we love talking about humidity. Um, but here's how we don't, we don't talk about it in terms of health. We talk about it in terms of comfort. Uh, you know, yeah. at a certain temperature, you want to have this humidity, you're going to feel better. Uh, you know, we have the tools on our trucks. We have the thermometers and the, and the sling psychrometers to take with the wet bulb and actually yep. arrive at relative humidity. We have, but you know what? We're not using that information to have a health conversation. We're having it to have a comfort conversation. I'm so happy to hear you enlighten us from your end because this is shedding all new a whole new light on our industry honestly and with the pandemic and everything going on it's i think it's forever changed and this conversation is not going to go away anytime soon and this really helps i think to hear you and what you're saying go, going forward to help folks you know breathe it, better it's and fascinating i i think engineers are actually <clears throat> the most important public health workers for the for the human race i mean you know us physicians we have a role to play too but it's really in the hands of the building professionals who to design and, and operate the indoor environment where we spend 90% of our time to support our health. And we never knew how powerful that indoor environment is. We, we didn't really understand until we started having these new tools. Well, we did know back in 1985, but we tended to ignore it. Yeah, right, right. And I mean, even in, in when you talk about, you know, engineers and our building design, as much as we all think we know, I mean, you think about design sand standards, right? Have we really arrived at the point where we're thinking, we're thinking in terms of building, building structure, like you said, aesthetics mm -hmm. and, and efficiency, right? Insulating the heck out of it so it's tight and we can, you know, you know, have smaller capacity equipment, get more out of our equipment. But how do you, on that same, and the same, from your end, from the health side, what are we missing out on? from the occupant's standpoint and the occupant's health. The way I see it is um, with all the fear and the, the sadness around COVID-19, it's really focusing our attention, our attention on strategies to prevent disease transmission. And that has very clearly come into the indoor environment. So I think that this COVID-19 has hit us over the head with the fact that we have to address the intersection of the indoor environment and human health. I agree with you wholeheartedly because I have been the busiest person the last three weeks training everybody on indoor. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's just, we, we've gotten thrust into this, you know, unfortunately mm -hmm. the, the sad side of the pandemic, but we, you know, from, from, we take a step back and look at it, it really has thrust us into this conversation and it is going to be an ongoing, very important part of what we do going forward. So what actually happens to the body? Cause I think I heard you heard, either wrote it or heard, heard it from you or read it from you somewhere that, um, our body in about eight hours time actually gets considered uh, medically or dehydrated, I think, or yes. what, what was your, tell me a little bit about that. So if you think about, um, if you think, go back to physics, to your second law of thermodynamics, which is the universe is always moving towards a state of increased entropy. It's kind of like your eighth grader, mm -hmm. you know, your teenager, uh, you clean up their room, and as soon as they go in their room, about an hour later, there's sort of an even spread of stuff. So that's the second law of thermodynamics. The universe is always moving towards uh, entropy or, mm -hmm. you know, an even degree of Equilibrium, yeah. Yeah. So if you think about a human being, we're, you know, 80% water. A human being goes into a room with low relative humidity air. What's going to happen as the universe moves towards equilibrium? 
we get water drawn out of us. And the, we have the, the average 50 kilogram woman, say, I think that's what I'm supposed to weigh. I have the surface area of half of a tennis court, including the doubles lines, of surface area that's exposed to the air. And so clearly that's not just my skin, it's all the way down into my lungs. But a human being has a tremendous amount of surface area that's exposed to the air. And when, if you're breathing in 20% relative humidity, unless you have an IV drip going, in eight hours you are between one and 2% dehydrated wow. by body weight. Wow. And the military has done fascinating studies showing that at 1% hypohydration, they call it, mm -hmm. your, your energy level is diminished, your hand-eye coordination is diminished, um, your eye, your corneas begin to have mild inflammation and increased tearing. Clearly our respiratory system is affected. Um, so there, there are body-wide changes that occur in low relative humidity. Engineers who don't want to think about relative humidity say, well, just drink some water. Yeah. So yeah, right. drinking water right. helps. But the, the fluid losses from your lungs and through your skin comes from a different tissue compartment than where water immediately goes when you drink it. It's not an immediate replacement strategy. So yeah, we become de mildly dehydrated after so being... But again, it's fascinating to me because as a trade, again, talking from in terms of humidity and, and when our bodies do get dehydrated, our, our HVAC guys, we talk about it in terms of, hey, you know, you might get static shock, you might get nosebleeds. You know, we talk in terms of, okay, that might be temporary discomforts, but we don't talk bigger picture. And again, I'm so happy to have this conversation and, and you shedding this light on us. It's just, it's, it's a revelation, if you will. And I think we can take this information and, you know, just... Uh, I know I'm certainly going to take what I'm learning from you and, and spread the word. That's for sure. Well, you know, it's, so I live in Northern Vermont and my husband was in the air force and I think he breathed in too much jet fuel or something <laughs> when he, you know, decades ago, but he has respiratory issues and would get a really bad, at least one really bad cold a year. And, you know, like the cobbler's kids who don't have shoes, I finally said, okay, let's humidify our house. And so we put, we have steam up in the bedroom area and we have evaporative downstairs because we have a wood stove and radiant heating. Mm -hmm. So we keep our house, you know, around 40% in the winter. And we've done this for the last four years. He has not had a single cold. Isn't that something? And Isn't in addition, something? we have seven dogs and the dogs love it because you can pet them without shocking their noses. <laughs> Which is a, a side benefit. I'm sure they're loving it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone who has a, a dog or a cat who they kiss or pet a lot, you know that, you know, you don't want to yeah. shock a poor creature when you. Yeah. Yeah. The poor thing. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, isn't that something? Um, so yeah, it, it's funny. So again, uh, from, from my, my upbringing in this trade, um, the only time we would suggest a steam humidifier to anybody theoretically would be if they have a lot of woodwork in the house, right? We're not even thinking about it in terms of the body, right? We're thinking, okay, you have a lot of woodwork or you have expensive artwork. You really need steam or you got that expensive piano over there. You really need steam. And that's the only time steam humidifiers are actually getting sold is it those rare, rare occasions where you have those folks. And now, I mean, this is shedding whole new light on it. If you really want to take control of your steam or your, your humidity, 
honestly, there's no better way than steam as you can attest to now to <laughs> me and you both. Uh, but it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. Do you, how do you see, you know, coming out of this, having gone through or going through this pandemic and going forward, uh, are you optimistic about anything of how we're going to come out of this from where you stand and what you're seeing? Are we going to get better at certain things going forward, if we're, taking what we're learning right now? Uh, how do you, how do you see the next, you know, six months, 12 months and, and going on in the future? You know, it's interesting, Rob, to, for me, I have, I feel like I should be careful talking about benefits that come from this because. Right. It's, well, sure. It's a tragedy sure. too. But I feel that, as I said earlier, this pandemic is going to draw our attention to the fact that clinicians and engineers and architects, we need to work together because we're indoors 90% of our time. And anyone who remembers back to you know, natural selection, we respond to our environments. And I think that this is like a hit over the head that we have to manage our buildings with human health in mind. And I think that when we do that, it, it could be one of the biggest advances in this century. I think that if we truly use occupant health as a building performance metric, and we can capture these things, we have wearables, we have all sorts of technology that allows us to capture how we're doing physiologically. So I think that's going to be a big long-term advantage. In the short term, I do believe that and we're seeing as the weather warms up, we're seeing a flattening out of the rise in infection, in new infections. So I think that thankfully, as we move into spring and summer, that there is going to be a seasonal effect, such as what we see with influenza. And you know, I'm not saying it's going to end everything yeah, right. miraculously, but I think that that change in the seasons where we, we don't need to warm up our air so much and dry it out, we're going to see a continuing abatement of infection rates. But I, I also feel like we don't have to even wait for the weather to change. We need to humidify our environments. Something we can control. Yeah, yeah. It's a variable that we have. It's a little more easy to control for us, I think, in the average, the average homeowner. You know, we can do something about it, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We can do something about it. But Rob, I don't think that steam is the only way we have to go. I Good mean, point. Good I point. feel like um, evaporative systems are great. You mm -hmm. know, they they're very energy efficient. They cool the air a little bit, as you know, but you can rewarm that air. I mean, I have a wood stove, which is excessively warm. Yeah. But I, don't, I think there are some very efficient uh, systems out there. Their steam is great, evaporative is great. We, we have the technology to humidify our buildings. Yeah, you bring up a really good, and I'm glad you brought that up because in my head, you know, we're a lot of forced air systems where I am. And I know in New England, there's more hydronic systems where you don't have duct work and it's not easily done through a whole, a whole home solution. I'll put it, say it that way versus yeah. like you're saying, there's lots of options. You know, we could literally, if you had to, I mean, it's very uh, old school, but bottle, you know, boil water on a, on a, on a, on your stove, right? You put a pot on your stove, your wood burning stove, or, or just getting humidity in the air, you know, um, yeah. You're right. There's various ways to do that. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. Yeah. Before I let you go, do you actually air out your house in the wintertime? <laughs> well, so so my house was, uh, the main part was actually built in like 1990 by kind of a beginner builder, I think. It's quite leaky. Oh. One half of the house is quite leaky. Then in 2007, my husband and I did an addition. And that part of the house is really well insulated and sealed. And I can't stand to be in it. Isn't that something? <laughs> I can't. 
I don't like it. So I forgot your question. You like the infiltration coming into your house. Yeah. I was asking if you, if you ever open the windows up in the dead of winter to just air the, air the house out. I do. And yeah, addition, yeah. when you have seven dogs, sometimes yeah. there are other odors you want to disseminate. <laughs> Understood. I'm sure they appreciate it too. <laughs> Not getting shocked and they, they enjoy the fresh air. Well, I hope you're able to take for them for some walks during this trying time and get outside and get some fresh air yourself with them. I really do. I, I truly, truly appreciate you being here with me and, and, and discussing uh, relative humidity and everything you know and sharing it with what you know. Um, I wish you the best going forward and I uh, hope we can keep in touch and, uh, yeah, and continue the conversation. So may I ask you a question? Sure, sure. So engineers sometimes have resistance to the idea of humidifying spaces. You know, they might get called on a Saturday afternoon if windows have condensation. So there is a push-pull about it. And I'm just wondering what made you value, um, you know, the, the, the idea that if you keep your indoor humidity in this mid-range zone, that you can be healthier. What made you particularly interested in that? So myself, you know, I grew up with allergies and asthma and respiratory, you know, issues, and I always took a keen interest just in the environment itself and, and growing up in the mechanical world too, you know, fixing furnaces and installing furnaces and air handlers and air conditioning. I was always a science, you know, geek myself and understanding, you know, um, uh, don't ask me to, 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 to re regurgitate the psychometric table and, and go through that with you. But anyway, from a practical standpoint, just an in, in, internal interest in, in what can I do better to help myself and my family breathe better mm -hmm. uh, in allergies and seasonal. So there's, you know, the, the, the methods that we always talk about from my end are, you know, um, fresh air dilution, you know, bringing mm -hmm. fresh air in, um, filtration, you know, do you have room for improvement in air filters that we're using? Humidity mm -hmm. is going to be a big, big, big component now. Uh, and then actual air purification, there's different devices on the market to purify the air. But humidity to me, just as we just said, it's, it's one of the easier ones that I think we all we can control or take control over in our house. And by any means, I would always, always suggest somebody locally, wherever you are, to, to, to reach out to your heating and air conditioning contractor to have a discussion about your system and what your system's capable of. Or your house, you know, every home is different, every occupant is different. But for me, it was just growing up miserable <laughs> and, and trying to, you know, alleviate symptoms, if you will. And and the humidity discussion was just like, well, I've always had humidifiers because I live up north, but I never knew, you know, that it actually had that much of an impact on my health that it did until I started reading some of the research you were doing. And it just it it sheds a whole new light on and, and like a different perspective in what I was trained and brought up in this field with. It's interesting. I, I was wondering if you're having struggled with your allergies and wanting to keep them at, you know, not, not have an allergic response. Yeah. You to think more about health in the indoor environment. Yeah. And dry skin and eczema are another thing, right? I mean, honestly, you struggle, uh, dry skin and, um, you know, having eczema too. It just, it, you're always, you, you can't get away from it, right? It's your body <laughs> and you live with it. And it's just like, you, need re, you know, you need relief. And if there's ways for people to have relief, that's what I'm happy to share this with everybody. Just there are ways to help relief and there are reliefs out there. And there's things that you can do to your house or help, you know, there's, there's strategies and I'm all about strategies in different ways. There's not one, you know, silver bullet. There's, there's mm -hmm. multiple methods to help, help you breathe better in your space, in your house. And so. But, but relative humidity between 40 and 60 really is really uh, beneficial to our health. And it's quite amazing uh, how powerful 
And, and here's the thing. So on the top end, we've always talked about the bottom end, I think in this, if you go to the top end above 60, I think that's where it's more popular, right? In the South too, you know, where higher humidity, we all know stuff grows when it gets wet, you know, fungus and mold and stuff loves to grow. We kind of all innately know that I think, you know, uh, things grow when it's damp and wet. And when there's water problems, you get, you know, disgusting stuff that grows and smells. Uh, but it's on the other side of it that has really just kind of opened my mind. And I think you said it best uh, in a conversation we had previously was that you, you don't even like, you would, you would mm -hmm. rather get away from the, the humidity term and call it hydration, right? I call it, I call it air hydration. Air hydration. Yeah. Really, you know, there's a, it, it, to keep your body hydrated, you have to drink some water, but you don't want to drink an excessive amount of water. So humidity, I think people, myself included, immediately go to the top range where you Think about mosquitoes and body yeah. odor and swamps, but it's, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about a healthy mid zone. So I call it indoor air hydration. <laughs> I love it. See, and I would even put a spin on that. I love what you start. I would say like healthy and, and residentially speaking, healthy home hydration, right? <laughs> yeah. The, healthy home that. hydration. That's it. There's a little ring to it, right? Fantastic. <laughs> okay, can so. I steal that? You no. can, you can have it. I, you can have it. It's all yours, please. Home hydration. <laughs> I like that. Well, uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much. Uh, and this has been very enlightening. And uh, again, going forward, uh, I look to seeing you uh, more often at, uh, on, online and, and in articles and print. Uh, this is just a conversation I, I'm glad to, to have shared with you and I appreciate it. Well, it's been, thank you so much for reaching out. And it's been my pleasure talking with you. All right, stay safe and, and breathe responsibly is what I, my, my new phrase. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, take care, Dr. Taylor. I hope you got some value out of that conversation. We're testing out various formats and would love to hear from you. Leave a review or comment and let us know what you think.